0: Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And it's also the
1: podcast that not exactly to the day, but this is basically our sixth anniversary. Yeah. Because our first episode came out on November 26, 2016. Yes. And we're very proud. We've stuck with it. No end in sight.
0: No, we enjoy it. We We do enjoy it.
1: It's part of our us, what we are, who we are. I I know you have a thought there and I'm interrupting you. I was going to add too, we have some very loyal followers because of their generosity. We don't suck as bad as we could. And I just want to name them. Karen Alden, Mary Jane Lowe, Moni Smith, John Whitson, who is actually a groovy tube fan but is sticking with crime and John, stuff. We'll, we'll get back to groovy too. Rhonda Arand, who's been very generous. Those aren't all our supporters, but those are ones who are longtime faithful supporters and we're very thankful since Thanksgiving just passed that they've stuck with us through thick and thin like a family for our patreon supporters we have
0: a very special christmas present yes we'll be sending you presents what i wanted to say is i listen to a lot of podcasts and we're In some ways, similar to others in other ways not. Mm -hmm. But one thing, and we've talked about this before, that we always agreed that we would be ourselves Mm -hmm. because this is something we're doing because we like doing it. And it's something that no one's paying us to do and no one's... We don't even have any advertisers. I mean, we're not beholden to anyone. No. We don't have to worry. We can I, say whatever we want and I, do whatever we want and be ourselves. Genuinely ourselves. And, you know, some people don't like that. And that's fine. And they don't, have to, don't listen. have to listen. It's one right. of the few places that we can really be ourselves. That's true. Well, I can always
1: be myself because I live by myself and don't work for anyone. <laughs> so, and I've always tried to be myself anyway, which is why (laughs) I live by myself and don't work for anyone. But I've always said since I was able to understand this concept, and I even can remember thinking a similar thought when I was too young to articulate it well, you know, I am who I am. And if people don't like it, that's their problem, not mine. That's right. People can take me the wrong way. And, you know, I feel like people's lives are left full if they don't, Understand me or like me?
0: Oh, you know what? On that point, I want to read something very quick to you. Oh. That happened tonight. It was. It's very, very quick. So okay. don't worry. And by the way, I just want to
1: say to the listeners too: if you hear a sound, it's not either of our stomachs. It's Becky's cat
0: Daisy. Oh, Daisy, she's very right. excited. She's purring very okay. loudly. So, as I've mentioned before, I like to go on next door. It's a very active next door. Tonight there was this post. Okay, a person in my neighborhood who wrote, reminder, as people begin to decorate for the holidays, outdoor lighting can cause a lot of color pollution and unsightly looks to your neighborhood. If you're planning to decorate, please be thoughtful and don't do anything too gaudy in your yard. A wreath on a door and some candlelit windowsills usually says it all. They can go fuck themselves. And I answered, he must be one of the people who likes the all white lights on the Portland Christmas tree. Ugh. The first person that responded just said harsh, but I wrote, <laughs> ha ha ha, I'm sorry, not sorry to disappoint you. You do you and I'll do me in parentheses, gaudy, shiny, bright. And, uh, and I got lots of likes. On yeah. That.
1: You can't tell people to adhere to your
0: own taste in their holiday decoration so it's a did you actually say the words color pollution
1: i could see somebody saying complaining about light pollution like turn your lights
0: and stuff off when you go to bed at night but color pollution i told mom and dad i said you know what if i find out that guy lives anywhere near us there's gonna be a hell of a lot more lights it's, in it's my probably yard. the psychopath next door neighbor i think he's a serial killer what but if he does sorry oh do you just go off i
1: don't know did i yeah, the screen went blank and, but you're back now it seems like there might be a little internet issue but there's it, high winds wind wind i like winds i know you do so does everybody else but four not. strong
0: winds that blow lonely
1: yeah because there's four of them but in general wind is an uncountable Actually, wah, wah. i'm sorry noun so you can't raise an issue you know that's going to set me off and then try to mock me while I'm talking about it I'm just going to say it quickly wind is an uncountable noun you don't have a a number number of
0: winds who has seen the wind neither I nor you okay I'm sorry
1: no you're not your hashtag sorry Sorry, not
0: sorry we might as well just move on because i don't (laughs) see this getting anywhere should i now we're gonna get complaints and our reviews that it took them 10 minutes to get to the story
1: i think 10 minutes is pretty good considering our usual
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay you have updates though i do i do have updates
1: first of all once again i am not going to do the update on the murder of Des Wendy and Stephen Reed. No, the only reason I
0: came tonight was to hear that update.
1: I know. And I know that many readers are now slamming. Right. Many listeners are now... slamming their car dashboards or whatever and saying I'm never listening to this fucking podcast again (laughs) because the only reason I've been listening is for that but when I started getting into it I realized it was too extensive for an update and I am gonna do my next episode on it I know I've said that before but I'm telling the truth this time okay something came up something
0: suddenly came up the lady of
1: the dunes that's why i (gasps) didn't do it last time and then i said okay i'll do an update but now i but i do have updates okay the first update is to episode 72 which was about the coconut grove fire as well as the station fire in rhode island and monday november 28th which was yesterday as we're recording this, was the 80th anniversary of the Coconut Grove fire in Boston. For those of you who haven't listened to episode 72, first of all, why the fuck haven't you? <laughs> but second of all, the Coconut Grove was a nightclub in Boston that burned down on November 28, 1942. Many of the people got trapped. It had a revolving door, so they got stuck up against the door, and there are a lot of fire code violations, and you can listen to episode 72 mm. to find out more. Yesterday in Boston, they held a commemoration that included the two known remaining survivors, Bob Shumway and Joyce Specter Mecklenburg, who are both in their 90s. They weren't there, but they were represented by their daughters. But I learned from the Boston Globe article about some myths about the fire that have been debunked since we did our episode a couple years ago. Mostly that's because of the hard work of Stephanie Chereau, an author who recently wrote a new book about the fire. And it's funny, I ran into her more than 10 years ago at a writer meet and greet in Boston. And she and I discussed the fire and the book. I think she had written a previous Coconut Grove book too, or she was working on one. I should have looked it up before this episode if this is her second Coconut Grove book. If she didn't write a second book, it means it's taken someone even longer to write their book than it's taking me to write my book because that was nice. Like, that was like at least 12 years ago. Anyway, some of the new information is. That while the death toll has officially been 492, like forever, it turns out it was actually 490 because two of the people in the fire had recently changed their names and they were listed twice. One of them had like a really Italian name, so like Americanized it. And another one was a woman who either got married or got divorced or something and changed and they've been listed twice for almost 80 years. So that was interesting. A long-held legend about the fire that I enjoyed, because it allowed me to crap on Boston College, which is the rival of my alma mater, Holy Cross, has also been, sadly for me, debunked. That day, the day of the fire, Holy Cross, the perennial underdog, had beaten BC in football 52 to 12, and that part is true. Uh, Of course, everybody expected BC to win. What's false is the long-held belief that BC had scheduled a victory party at the Coconut Grove, but were so dispirited and the typical baby (laughs) poor losers that they are that (laughs) that they didn't show up. Well, it turns out that's just not true. And that's the part about them scheduling a party, not the other stuff. It turns out they did have a party, but it was at the Hotel Statler. Shiro said the legend may have started because the year before they'd had a party at Pocot Grove after Mm -hmm. the game. And it's also possible that some players had planned to go there for an after party after the party at the Hotel Statler. And she said, The story of how a terrible defeat saved BC lives has been repeated so many times it's ingrained into the history of the doomed nightclub. I think it underscores a greater truth. She said... That we humans are desperate to see meaning even in horrific events. And we have to believe Mm -hmm. in a divine purpose for all of our lives. Exactly, yeah. And then there's also some stuff about the mechanics and specifics of the fire. But I think in our episode, we pointed out the causes are still pretty much unknown and talked about some of that. She said the fact it spreads so fast still baffles the experts Uh. another interesting thing for many years the site of the fire has been marked by a small plaque in the sidewalk on piedmont street in front of where the coconut grove was and there hasn't been much more now they're talking about building a memorial michael hanlon of the coconut grove memorial committee told the Boston Globe the committee is working with the city to build a memorial that will be a replica of the three archways on the club's exterior the patrons walk through to get to the revolving door entrance, you know, the one where the bodies piled up. Uh. I can't go through a revolving door without thinking about that. Uh. The monument will be in nearby Statler Park on Stewart Street and will have the names of the 490 victims. I also noticed in a boston globe photo that the alley off of piedmont street at the corner where it was is coconut grove lane which i think is relatively new i think that's like a new little alley Mm -hmm. at the ceremony on november 28th leslie kaufman daughter of joyce specter mecklenburg read a statement from joyce who's now 98 and couldn't make the ceremony joyce was inside the melody lounge the basement room where they think the fire started With her boyfriend, Justin Charles Morgan, who she said was the love of her life. And the statement is very short. The statement read, Justin died that night trying to help put out the fire that started above our heads. The reason I did not die with him was only because he sent me up to get the beautiful leopard coat that my father had made for me. Justin Hmm. stayed to put out the fire, saying he would be along in just a minute. And that was her account and so that is my coconut grove update next i have an update of sorts to episode 125 katahdin kills and doesn't Ooh. care and that was about people who've been lost or died on katahdin and maine and other such places and again if you haven't listened to it why not if you have listened <laughs> to it you know what i'm talking about and also i was a little surprised to find out at thanksgiving our brother billy who I made the trouble of getting a recording about his experience on Katahdin that happened the same at the same time, Jesse Hoover disappeared that he hasn't even bothered to listen to that episode, even though he was on it. You're surprised. The fact that he himself is on it, you would yes. think would be impetus for him. Too. He's a very, very
0: busy man.
1: Very, important. very busy, very important. Ask very Mom busy. And Dad. That's true. Anyway, In a perfect world, everyone would listen to me all the time. Yes, I know they would. But but they don't. I do. I do. Thank you. On October 9th, a letter from me appeared in the Boston Globe. It was in response to an article about how more and more people are getting lost in New England's mountains since COVID and they're all going outside and doing stupid things because people are idiots. And the article focused on the fact that warning signs have now been posted all over New Hampshire's White Mountains telling people to be prepared for the weather and other basic stuff. Anyone who goes hiking in the mountains should already know. The article had a very nice sidebar about all sorts of ways hikers can check the weather before they go. What it didn't have was some very basic information, so I wrote this letter. And it has the headline that I did not write. Safe hiking in NH mountains comes down to basics. And the letter says regarding what to know before hiking New Hampshire mountains. And this is my letter. Aside from the lengthy information offered on how hikers can check the weather in the sidebar to last Sunday's front page story in NH, a hard line on wayward hikers, unquote, staying safe while hiking is often as simple as following the basic rules many of us learned long ago. Know the trail. If there's a trail map, bring it. Bring a flashlight, compass, whistle, more effective than yelling, and water. Don't hike alone. On the trail, don't separate from your buddies and don't leave anyone behind. Hike at the pace of the slowest person in the group. Stay on the trail. If it looks like a shortcut, but there's no trail, it's probably not a shortcut. And this is a new one since I learned those rules. Don't ever rely on your phone for maps, GPS, flashlight, compass, or getting help. Following these basics should keep hikers from getting lost and could save their life if they do. Maureen Milliken, Belgrade Lakes, Maine
0: nice very short and sweet
1: right well they have a 300 word limit the guy yeah. actually edited it down a little well <laughs> i expected everyone in the world to read that letter and alter their behavior but it seems people have not which is very frustrating for me there have been a variety of articles about people lost her etc in the mountains since then and that was only about six or seven weeks ago but the saddest one happened last week Aww. Emily Sotello of Westford, Massachusetts, 19, was dropped off by her mother at 4 a.m. Sunday, November 20th in the parking lot of Lafayette Place Campground in Franconia Notch State Park in New Hampshire. She planned to hike the Mount Lafayette, Little Haystack, Mount Liberty, and Mount Flume Trail. It's a 13.7 mile loop trail that includes five peaks of New Hampshire's 25 highest mountains and is considered challenging. It takes an average nine hours to complete. You don't have to climb up and down all five mountains because much of it runs across the Franconia Ridge, but there is a 4,000 plus elevation change as you hike. She was turning 20 on November 23rd, and her goal had been to summit all 48 of New Hampshire's 4,000 footers before she turned 20. As an aside, I've seen this referred to as a bucket list, (laughs) but I think the origin of bucket list, which I'm not a fan of, is things to do before you Kick, Kick the-, the bucket, and I think anyone who thinks that turning 20 is kicking the bucket, wow, is we'll oh, ooh, yeah, too soon. Anyway, she was almost done bagging the 48 4,000 footers, and with the hike, she bagged five the summits of Mount Lafayette, a 5,260 foot mountain in New Hampshire's sixth highest, Mount Lincoln, the seventh highest, at 5,089 feet. Mount Liberty at 4,459, and that's the 18th highest in New Hampshire, and Mount Flume, which at 4,328 feet is New Hampshire's 25th highest mountain. I'm not sure how many mountains she had left before she had hiked all 48, and I'm not sure which of these she hadn't hiked because none of the articles said. In fact, a lot of them said there were two peaks, but when I looked up the trail that she was on, there were six. According to news reports, Emily set out wearing a light jacket, a shirt, windbreaker pants, thermal long johns, and had a small pack that included a water bladder. Her family said she did not have anything she could use for makeshift shelter or to start a fire. I'm going to guess from subsequent events, she also didn't have a compass though I'm not sure about that, or a whistle, flares, or other basic stuff you should have, especially if you're hiking alone in November in the White Mountains. She was described in all the articles I read as an experienced hiker. Unfortunately, she wasn't experienced enough. In fact, I would say that Emily was only unprepared for the weather that can hit the mountains this time of year, which is basically winter weather. And if you've listened to that Katahdin episode, that blizzard that killed Margaret Ivesik and Ralph Heath was at the end of October. I think she was unprepared in many ways for a hike at any time of year, given that she was by herself and going 5,000 feet above sea level. Uh. By the way, none of this is to victim blame, but it's difficult to tell a story like this without it being a cautionary tale. She was reported missing the night of Sunday, September 20th, when her mother went to pick her up and she didn't show. The search began that night in blowing snow and wind gusts between 40 and 60 miles an hour Uh. that brought the wind chill down to 20 below zero Fahrenheit, the Boston Globe reported. On Tuesday, searchers descending Mount Lafayette from its summit found a plastic water bottle and a banana, and this is two days since she disappeared, near some tracks that they believe she had made. It took them an hour and a half to follow the tracks about 250 yards because of waist-deep snow and dense forest. And they were approaching a dangerous drop-off, and it was getting dark, so they stopped for the night. The next day, Wednesday, November 23rd, on Emily's 20th birthday, rescuers again began ascending the northwest side of Mount Lafayette, working their way toward where the crew had left off the day before. Before they got to where that crew had stopped, they found her body. New Hampshire Fish and Game Colonel Kevin Jordan said that Emily made it to the summit of Mount Lafayette, but by then the weather had turned with cold wind and snow. From high up on Lafayette, you can see Interstate 93 snaking far below. Jordan said they believe that Emily, trying to get down as fast as she could and away from the bad weather, decided to bushwhack a shortcut straight down the northwest side of the mountain to the highway that she could see. None of the stories say, but I'm going to assume that Emily did the trail counterclockwise, which would mean she'd done all their peaks and had about four and a half miles to go down the Greenleaf Trail to get back to the trailhead about 1.1 miles from the peak of Mount Lafayette on this trail is the Greenleaf Hut which she may have passed or may not have and maybe didn't see it given the conditions but it's a place she could have taken shelter but i can see thinking because lots of times when something drastic is happening to you you still don't realize it's drastic i can see thinking you can still get down your mother is going to be waiting in the parking lot she'll be worried there's the highway right down there and you're almost done you've done the whole frigging thing almost and you Mm. keep thinking it's going to be easy just to do this and i don't know that that's what she was thinking but that's probably what i would have been thinking why do i want to shelter in this hut during this cold and blowing snow when i can see the highway Mm. just like margaret and the katahdin one saw chimney pond campground and said well i'm just going to go down this way Mm. overcome by the conditions which included temperatures in the single digits Mm. fahrenheit she finally took cover in what's described in articles as a drainage area, which is basically a spot where different streams of water and stuff come together, which to me would mean a indentation or something. It may have been a cre- like crevice. A gully or something. And I don't even know if taking shelter is the correct word at this point. I'll explain why in a second. But anyway, Jordan, the, the colonel from the New Hampshire Fish and Game who was leading the search said, I think she ran until she couldn't do it anymore. She was in extreme conditions on very challenging terrain. We don't think she had a clue where she was. I don't think she could see. My guys couldn't see up there. There was no visibility, end quote. She hadn't run out of water, but her water bladder was frozen solid when they found her. She was hatless. I'm not sure if she brought a hat or not. And somewhere she'd either lost her three season hiking shoes and socks or hyperthermia prompted her to take them off. And that's what makes me think she might not have been taking shelter but if she was hypothermic she probably just collapsed once again new hampshire fishing game officials after this latest tragedy urge hikers to be prepared for the worst possible conditions when heading into the mountains this time of year colonel jordan noted what should be obvious to any experienced hiker and even unexperienced hikers that the conditions above the tree line are usually far worse than what is seen at the trailhead And I think even if you've just driven across Maine or New Hampshire on a fall day, it can be snowing where I live and 60 degrees where you live, and we only live 70 miles apart. I mean, you know, quote, this is preventable with experienced equipment and some pre-trip planning, Jordan said. People hike in the winter all the time, and they do it safely unquote. And I'll add something else that from all my reading and research on the topic, which I've done a lot of both for our episode a couple months ago, as well as books I've written and things, people have a much higher estimation of their abilities and preparedness than they really have. And I'm not, like I said, saying any of this or telling this story to shame or blame Emily But I'm sure she thought, like many other people before her and many will in the future, hell, I'll be up and down so fast. I'll be fine. I don't need to bring a lot of extra stuff that's going to weigh me down. I'm just going to zip up this trail. I've done it a million times. Like I said, she's not the first to think that and she's not the last. But the thing is, it's best to prepare for the worst, no matter how experienced you think you are. True experience is knowing that. And it doesn't matter what length of hike you're going or where you're going. You should always have a compass and a whistle mm. and a flashlight. At Baxter yeah. State Park, they require, although they don't check people, and I'm sure most people don't, no matter what time of day you're going hiking, to have a flashlight with you. And Maybe. nobody said she didn't have those things, but nobody said she did have those things. I think part of the didn't... Is I think the reporters writing the articles that I read didn't know to ask about that stuff. But for instance, if you have a compass, it's harder to get lost. I think a, an experienced hiker, yeah, although she might have already been suffering from hypothermia, would not have said, oh, look, I can see... Interstate 93 way down there, I'm just going to go straight down because an experienced hiker would have known if you could get down that way, there would be a trail that went down that way because thousands and thousands of hikers over the past hundred years wouldn't have gone the longer way. I mean, even before I-93 was there, it's the notch. I think people said she was experienced because she had hiked a lot of those 4,000 footers and I don't know what else. But I think experience is not just doing a lot of something but it's learning from it i can't imagine if i were the kind of hiker she was at the end of november going for a hike above 4,000 feet in the white mountains and thinking that i wasn't gonna come into contact with weather all you have to do is read the friggin paper but anyway, mm-hmm. those are
0: my updates. No, that was sad. Thanks no, it was lot. sad.
1: It was a sad story. And I don't mean to sound glib or make light of her experience, but it's just very, very frustrating when Shit like that happen. I would even say
0: don't go by yourself. Yeah, I don't don't think it's. I mean, I I understand wanting to go by yourself, right? But
1: if she had slipped and broken her ankle, it would have been the same thing. I know. You know, even the most experienced hiker can get hurt almost Mm -hmm. every day. And I see in the Boston Globe or in our local papers or something that somebody hiking somewhere in Maine or New Hampshire fell and hurt their leg and had to be helped out or gotten out. Yes, it happens. And your fucking cell phone isn't going to work. And even in the
0: summer it's bad but this time of year when you're above the tree line it's like well, and, I and I,
1: good for her mother for realizing that you know and maybe she said hey if i'm not down here by five o'clock and it's dark out because oh. it gets dark here now at 4 35 at night get home i feel bad for her parents she was a, a sophomore and junior at vanderbilt university and apparently a a great kid, smart, doing well in school and big plans for the future. And like I said, it's hard to tell a story like that without sounding like I'm victim blaming, but you can be the smartest person in the world. But because like I said in that episode, nature doesn't care. Nature isn't going to give you a break because you're a good kid or something. Mm -hmm. You you know, there isn't somebody up there pulling the strings and saying, I'm going to save and protect you because you want to live another 60 or 70 years, 20 degree below Ugh. zero temperatures are going to kill you no matter who you are. Thank you for that. On that uplifting note- story.
0: <laughs> and I've got one too.
1: And I'm looking forward to this because I have no idea
0: what this, you know, what's funny is I was living in Portland when this happened and I read the paper every day and I probably read all about it at the time, but I still didn't remember it. So I'm always trying to keep a list of potential Stories and I was going through the state police list of murders because they're doing that now. Yeah. Yeah. Sh- thanks, Shannon Moss. Shannon Steve McCausland never bothered to do that. And she labels them as either domestic or right. stranger, right? Or whatever. I saw this one and I said, hi. I don't know what that one is. And so I looked it up. I just picked one at random, really. I'm like, Mm. you know what? I'm just going to pick one.
1: It's like like Wheel
0: of Fortune or something. Well, I feel like almost any story is interesting and maybe do something that, you know, everybody hasn't heard of. I have a little disclaimer. Mm. A lot of these names are unfamiliar to my tongue. Some of the people are Iranian. Some are Indian. And I tried to look up phonetically to see how they're pronounced, but that might not be correct because whoever was pronouncing them might be from a different area. So I just don't want anyone to think I'm being disrespectful. In the spring of 2002, Azita Jamshab was feeling good about her future. She had recently passed her exam to get her main cosmetology license. She had just finalized her divorce, ending an almost three-year marriage to fellow Iranian immigrant. Human She told French she was going to move to Las Vegas. She already had a job lined up. She was 29 and ready to get on with her life. She had been working at the beauty salon Smart Style in the Walmart on Payne Road in Scarborough. Uh And the Walmart has now moved. That Now Mardens is in that spot. Uh On the evening of March 6th, which was a Wednesday, Azita told a co-worker she was going out to dinner with a male friend. Azita's ex-husband was possessive. Her boyfriend, Ahmad Kojestazad, known as Koji, was kind of clingy. Azita asked Kathy Bailey, who worked at Smart Style with her, to give her a cover story. She wasn't cheating or anything. It probably just wasn't worth the hassle if her boyfriend found out she was having dinner with a guy. Later accounts call it a date, but I honestly don't think Azita thought it was, and I'll explain more later. Okay. That night, Koji, I'm going to just call him Koji. That night, Koji called Azita several times. Uh He tried her a few times in the morning, too. When she didn't pick up the phone, Koji called Kathy Bailey repeatedly. At first, Kathy covered for Azita, but she finally caved and told Koji that Azita had gone out to dinner with another guy. Later that same afternoon, Nelson Palmer was driving south on Goose Pond Road in Cumberland when he glanced over to the entrance of state-owned sand pits and saw a dark shape on the ground. It stood out in contrast to the light tan-colored dirt. The shape was about 40 feet off the side of the road, where a cable stretched across the entrance, blocking cars from entering the pits. At first, Nelson thought it was a black garbage bag. People sometimes dump trash bags on the side of the road, especially a road like Goose Pond, which isn't very busy and you can often be the only car on the road. He told the Press Herald, I thought, that's awful large for a trash bag. Nelson got curious, so he turned his truck around and went back to check it out. He parked his truck and got out. It looked like a body, maybe a mannequin, he thought, although as we all know, it's never a mannequin. For a few minutes, he just stood at the end of his truck as cars passed, wondering what to do. When he walked toward the body, he stopped about 25 feet away. He could tell now that it wasn't a trash bag and it wasn't a mannequin. It was the dead body of a woman. She was dressed in black pants and a black shirt and had reddish blonde hair. He also saw something that looked like pillow filling or like fluff or something near her body. Nelson said, I didn't walk right up to the body, just something in the back of my head. I was close enough to see any movement, but I waited quite some time and there wasn't any body movement. Nelson's house was nearby. So we went back home and called police. Remember, this is 2002. A lot of people didn't have cell phones. And it's funny in the newspaper articles, you can tell, because they always say, he called somebody on his cellular phone. <laughs> they always <call laughs> Yeah, it. yeah. Anyway, he went back to his house and called the police. Then he returned to stay by the body. He didn't want any kids to come across her while walking by. The sand pits were also a popular place for four-wheelers and dirt bikes and even target shooting. Nelson didn't want the scene disturbed. Usually the traffic on Goose Pond Road was commuters. Goose Pond Road goes by this lake called Forest Lake. It's a fairly small lake and it's weird. These sand pits are right near the corners of a bunch of towns. People who lived by Forest Lake used the road to go to and from work in the morning and afternoon. During the middle of the day, the traffic was light, and nowadays there's a housing development right across the road from the pit entrance, but Mm. back then there wasn't. It was a lot more isolated. Local police called Maine State Police to the crime scene because it was clear to them that the woman had been killed. And as we've discussed in prior episodes, state police handle all homicides in Maine with the exception of Portland and Bangor. Police shut down the road so they could investigate. Gwen Frost, who lived near the site, said, it's just so scary. I never thought anything like that would happen here. Nelson Palmer said, it kind of squirms your brain a little bit when you find something like that, especially in a community like this.
1: And I just want to say Cumberland, it does have its rural, less wealthy parts, but it's one of the state's wealthiest communities.
0: Yes, but that is. part isn't. But that
1: part isn't. It's the part that's West more Cumberland.
0: It's kind weird. of a
1: s- suburban area of Portland
0: it's more country out there.
1: Right. It's country. But what I mean is yes, people who work
0: in Portland and stuff live there. Steve McCausland, who was a spokesman for the State Department of Public Safety, said once we find out who she is, we can retrace her steps, find out where she was and who she was with. Police canvass the area, which, as I said, is near the borders of several towns, Cumberland, Wyndham, Gray and Falmouth. They all kind of come together in that area. Goose Pond Road was a dirt road that connects Forest Lake with Blackstrap Road. They didn't have to search long to find out who the victim was. Of course, you already know who the victim was, Azita Jamshab. Koji called police late afternoon or early evening, depending on what report you read, on Thursday, March 7th, to report Azita missing. Other reports said her workplace reported her missing too, and still others say her ex-husband called to report she hadn't showed up to meet him Thursday evening like she was supposed to. Maybe all are correct. Who knows? And I didn't say, but almost every single thing I'm writing came from the Press Herald reports, except for some are from court proceedings that I found online, but most of them are from the Press Herald. Different reporters, David Hench, Mm, um, Kasich, Greg Kasich, he was a reporter back then. At the time, police wouldn't say how she died, but gunshots had been reported about a little after 9 p.m. on Wednesday night. By Friday evening, a man was in custody. He was Santanyu Basu, 34, who went by the name Sam, He was an insurance agent who worked for Nationwide Insurance and lived in Standish, Maine. He worked at both the Portland and Brunswick offices of Nationwide Insurance. This is how he was caught. Two Cumberland police were parked in the parking lot of cop motors on Route 100 in Gray, or maybe Cumberland. I think that's Cumberland. Some reports say it was Blackstrap Road, but it's on the corner of those two roads. It isn't far from the sand pits. And I'm imagining they were parked driver's side to driver's oh, side yeah. chatting like yeah. they love to do. Yeah, They heard gunshots. They drove to the pits, probably less than a five minute drive, and passed two cars leaving the area. They got descriptions of the cars and partial license plate numbers. State Police Lieutenant Brian McDonough said that information was very useful in making the arrest. Mm-hmm. The stories didn't explain, but I wonder why the cops didn't pull anyone over. I mean, isn't hearing gunshots like... Well, were they pull...
1: going to the pits? And they the were cars... going there
0: and they passed the two cars out of that area right so they
1: were probably going there to see what had happened yeah that's true they didn't know at that point
0: right the police apparently didn't see the body at the time although they drove around the access roads looking for parked cars they didn't see any cars or any people I should say and we've said this before but if you don't live in a rural area it's hard to explain how dark the roads are without street lights and even if you have your headlights on she was visible from the road the next day that guy nelson saw her but who knows why they didn't see her she's wearing black i would imagine they would have had to go into the sand pit
1: well she was in the entrance right to it. but they would but, have had to turn like they were going into it maybe they
0: were just driving around the periphery the stuff. other thing i was thinking is that isn't the only entrance oh okay so they could have gone in another entrance driven around inside it and then come out and not come out that entrance. right so who knows Police had no information about a possible motive or what connection there may have been between Sam Bessu and Azita Jamshab. Lieutenant McDonough said, we're in the process now of doing a positive identification of Azita. There were leads at the crime scene that led to her identification. At the time, police were still trying to contact Azita's family, who all lived in Iran. Friday afternoon, March 8th, state police asked Sam to come to the state police barracks in Gray to answer a few questions. Then he was arrested and charged with murder. Police were able to zero in on Sam quickly for a few reasons. Azita had her name tag from work still pinned to her blouse. I don't think it had her full name, but her first name and the name of the workplace that was identified on it. A few hours after they found her, the missing person report came into Westbrook Police. Azita is not a common name, so I'm sure it was pretty easy to put two and two together. Lieutenant McDonough said, going out to the scene, I became very concerned because it had all the indications of a who-done-it." Mm. We had a female left in the middle of nowhere with no identification on her, and those can become worrisome. Police went to Azita's workplace, smart style, and Kathy Bailey told them that the man Azita was having dinner with was Santanyu Basu. Lieutenant Brian McDonough said, we know they were acquaintances and friends. We haven't confirmed any more than that. We're obviously going to look into the depth of their entire relationship. The deputy medical examiner, Michael Ferenc said his autopsy showed Azita had been shot four times, including once in the back. Her spinal column had been severed. As I said in the beginning, Azita was at a crossroads in her life when she was killed. She had come to the United States in 1998 after leaving her home country of Iran, and spending some time in a refugee camp in Pakistan. And the newspaper doesn't say when or why she was in the camp. Iran was really oppressive until the uh, late 90s. So that could be why. But I wish they had gone more into it because I wanted to know more about her. In any case, Azita arrived in Portland, Maine sometime in 1998. She came alone unaccompanied by family members, which is Kind of unusual for a woman from Iran. The newspapers I read didn't make it clear, but I wonder if she was helped by the Refugee Resettlement Program, which brings a lot of immigrants to Maine. And it's run by the, I think, the Catholic diocese. She met fellow Iranian Human Yazdampana and married him on January 3rd, 1999. So she hadn't been here very long before marrying, mm. and I'm thinking it was probably scary and overwhelming to be a young person, only in her mid-twenties, in an unfamiliar country. And I'm sure she got married in part because Human felt familiar and safe to her. The newlyweds moved to California for a while, but soon came back to Maine, where Human had extended family. The marriage lasted until z- December 10, 2001. Azita had just gotten her cosmetology license and a job at Smart Style. She had a student loan of $7,000 to pay off. In a court affidavit filed at the time of her divorce, Azita said, My husband moved me out of our apartment on November 1st, 2001, while I was out of town, and I do not have access to the marital checking account. The marriage between Azita and Human had issues. Portland police had responded to several calls at the couple's home. In one incident, which the Press Herald doesn't give a date for, police were called to their apartment on Gilman Street and charged both Human and his father with assault. According to police, Human's father, who is not named in the story, hit both Azita and Human, knocking Human to the floor and threatening to kill him. The charges against both men were dropped by the district attorney. The couple was living on Congress Street on December 28, 2000, when a neighbor called police because of a screaming match. According to the Press Herald, there were no, quote, threats of violence, end quote, but police suggested Azita get a protection from abuse order, which she didn't do. In July 19, 2001, Azita called police to report threatening phone calls. One was from a woman who said she was going to kill Azita. Another call was from a man who told Azita he knew she was cheating on Human and he had video and email evidence. And I wonder if those were because of her husband. The woman was someone he was cheating with and the man was just some when he got to call her. You know how when someone's cheating and they always accuse you. of. Lois Galgay Reckett was director of family crisis services at the time. She told the press herald she had spoken with police about Azita's killing, but would not confirm that Azita had ever stayed at a shelter or contacted them for services. Tajinder Jit owned the Tandoor Indian restaurant on Exchange Street in Portland, which is in the Old Port. She met Azita in 2001. Tajinder and her husband... Bupinder were selling their home in Portland, and Azita Human, his parents, and his sister were walking by or driving by and saw the sale sign on the front lawn and knocked on the door. Tajinder invited them in and showed them the home. She served them tea and snacks, and a friendship was born. At the time, Tijinder told the press herald, they seemed like a very happy couple. But a few days before Azita's death, Tajinder ran into her at the Salvation Army store in Portland. Tajinder said, she told me she got a divorce. She said, my life has not been easy. I tried to work it out, but I couldn't. It's not easy getting divorced and it's very hard living alone. Tajinder said Azita got a call on her phone during their conversation and it sounded like she was talking to somebody who wanted to purchase her car. Azita told Tajinder that she was moving Sunday. First, she said to Florida, then corrected herself and said she would be moving to Los Angeles, and she already had a job lined up. She didn't want her ex-husband or his family to know. And I'm just interrupting myself now to say that there are conflicting reports about where Azita was going, but I think it was Las Vegas. Some friend reported Los Angeles, too, besides Tajinder. But I think they either misunderstood or she was deliberately telling people the wrong location to hide her plans from her ex and Mm. her in-laws. Yeah, I I think Kathy Bailey, her friend at work is the most reliable source. And she said Las Vegas. Tajinder said, I asked her if she had found somebody else and she said no. Tajinder said that Azita was tall and slim with dark hair and she usually wore American style clothing. I know the other description said her hair was reddish blonde, but she worked in a salon and it's not unusual for people who do hair to change their hair color all the time. The Iranian community in Portland was small, maybe 100 people or so, and they knew each other. Riza Jalali, an Iranian immigrant, said, This has shaken the Iranian community. We are a close-knit community, and this had a negative impact. There is a sense of insecurity and fear. We are mystified. We're hoping the police solve this case soon. The killing brought back bad memories of a murder-suicide four years prior. The Iranian community in Portland was stunned when Karim Nosrati, age 46, shot his wife Sohila, age 40, and then himself. On April 10, 1998, Kareem sent his wife flowers at the hair salon she operated on Auburn Street in Portland. Kareem had owned an, a restaurant on Exchange Street called the Caspian Cafe, but it had gone out of business. Both Kareem and Sohila had come from Iran under the auspices of the Refugee Resettlement Program in 1988. They had two daughters. One was 16 at the time of their deaths and a student at Kathy McCauley High School and All-Girls Catholic School. The other daughter was 20 and attended Northeastern University. At first, everyone thought Kareem had, quote, snapped
1: mm. for some
0: reason. The initial report said neighbors heard fighting, slamming, and a scream about four in the morning. One neighbor thought a dog in the apartment building was making noises. The neighbor, David Perry, was surprised to hear about the murder-suicide. He said, we're talking a quiet family here. Well, disciplined, polite, friendly. Reza Jalali was a friend of the family. He was the guy I quoted earlier. He, and he said, they were really hardworking people, model citizens. They had one goal in life, a commitment to education for their daughters. I wish Kareem had asked for help. I wish he had known where to go. I wish he had made a phone call. As the investigation progressed, it became clear that Kareem had planned the murder-suicide. He didn't just snap. Mm. The day of the killings was Sohila's 40th birthday. Kareem sent flowers and a birthday cake to her beauty salon. The family had dinner that night, and he gave her a pair of diamond earrings. After dinner, their two daughters went to spend the night with their grandmother in town, Portland. Norris Dale, a friend who'd known the couple for 10 years, said these people had an entrepreneurial skill that would not quit. And the intellectual caliber of this family was incredible. Norris thought that money problems could have led Kareem to break. Quote, you hear about the immigrant experience and people who work their fingers to the bone and claw their way in the U.S. and come to, up to the top. But they don't all make it. In the end, I think finances were the pressure cooker that finally blew up. In Iran, Karim had been a jet engine mechanic and a supervisor in the Air Force, but he lost his job in 1979 after the revolution. He sold socks in the marketplace after that. Then he was arrested for having subversive reading material. After that, he decided he had to leave Iran. He left with the $500 that the government allowed vacationing citizens to take. The family lived in Turkey and Germany before coming to America. It only took a couple of years for Kareem and Sohila to learn English and get jobs. Kareem worked at Mercy Hospital and then opened his restaurant, which wasn't successful, and he ended up with carpal tunnel syndrome as well. But Kareem was upbeat, according to friends, and was getting a certification to be a nutritionist. But that all changed the night of Sohila's birthday. Kareem bought the 357 revolver less than a week before the shooting at Howell's Gun Shop in Gray. There was a five-day waiting period before you could pick up a gun after buying it. Police Chief Michael Chipwood said the people in Gray said he was very anxious. He was calling every day for it, end quote, like Homer Simpson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm mad now. <laughs> at some point during the night, the evening of the birthday, Kareem wrote a letter and forced Sohila to write one as well. He accused her of having an affair in his letter, which she denied in writing. She wrote her part, I guess. They wouldn't release what the letter said, unfortunately, I want to know. She apparently tried to escape by running into the bathroom, but he shot her and then went into the bathroom and shot himself. Chief Chitwood said, people are saying it was about money or depression, but this was thought out. This wasn't a spontaneous thing. There was a motive, whether it was right or not. My heart goes out to the children. The victims of these types of things are always the surviving family members. The older sister Nassim was faced with raising her younger sister, Nita. But Nassim told Bill Nemitz, a columnist with the Portland Press Herald, that the Iranian community had been very loving and supportive. Even so, the deaths were devastating to friends and acquaintances. And now, four years later, here was another member of the community shot to death. At Santanyu Basu's indictment on April 4th, the relationship between Sam and Azita was still ambiguous. Assistant Attorney General William Stokes told the Press Herald, this was not a stranger abduction. There was a relationship between them, but I don't want to further characterize it at this point. Sam Basu was the one and only suspect in Azita's killing. Sam was in a lot of debt and told a friend that he owed $40,000 to bad people. Sam applied for a court-appointed lawyer to represent him, saying that he was indigent. Though his household income was $60,000, he reported his credit card debt at $90,000. As information emerged, the newspaper started reporting that Azita and Sam had a romantic relationship. The state police affidavit said on March 6th, Azita had told a co-worker that her boyfriend wanted to get together once more before Azita left for California, and she was excited about it. According to the affidavit, Sam was the boyfriend. I'm stressing according to the affidavit because I think the person interviewing the co-worker inferred a lot, and I will talk about that later. When police searched Azita's apartment in Westbrook, her purse, wallet, and cell phone were still there. There was paperwork in her apartment that said Sam Bessieu was her insurance agent azita's coworker confirmed that azita was going to have dinner with her insurance agent that night the night of azita's death the two cumberland cops heard two quick shots and one more a little after 9 p.m as i said they passed two cars they traced one car to a man who had been picking up a friend in the area that driver told police he'd seen another car a boxy silver model parked on the side of the road near the entrance to the pits that car left about the same time he did When Maine State Police found out who Azita was meeting that night, They visited Sam Beshew at his office the Friday morning after Azita was found. Sam told them that, yes, he had visited Azita at her home that Wednesday evening, but only for about 20 minutes. They were to discuss her insurance policy and have dinner that night, but Azita canceled on him. So instead, Sam called his old Navy buddy, Dexter Fleming, and they went out to play pool together. Meanwhile, that same morning, Portland police detective Todd Coons answered a call from Dexter Fleming had some interesting things to share with him sometime before azita was killed it's not clear if this was the same day or prior to that sam called dexter and asked him to provide a cover story to say they were together the night of the of the killing sam was married with a couple of kids so dexter just assumed he was helping his friend cover up a date with another woman Mm -hmm. so dexter said sure What a pal. Yeah, they all stick together. But when Sam and Dexter met Thursday afternoon, Dexter was shocked to find out what he had really agreed to. Sam told Dexter that he had killed one of his clients the night before. Whoops! Sam (laughs) said that Azita had named him as beneficiary to her $100,000 term life insurance, and if she died, Sam had agreed to give $50,000 to her family in Iran, and he would get the other half. Mm. sam told dexter he had rented a car and picked azita up at her apartment he took her to an indian restaurant in brunswick where they got takeout and took it back to his office in brunswick to eat in the break room there then sam took azita on a drive here's a quote from the police report he stopped the vehicle (laughs) Hmm. and the woman got i'm surprised i didn't say the female and the woman got out of the vehicle Sam told the woman to close her eyes and then Sam shot her four times, the last shot being in the back. Sam told Dexter he'd almost been caught by the cops as he drove away. He cleaned azita's blood out of the car before returning it the next morning sam drove back down goose pond road the next morning to make sure she was still dead and was satisfied when he saw azita's body still there after sam told dexter the story he asked dexter to tell police the two of them were together all night dexter said okay but then he called portland police Mm -hmm. the next day police asked dexter if he called sam while being recorded under the pretense of needing to synchronize their alibi stories dexter said he would Police confirmed that Sam had rented a silver Buick LeSabre at 4 p.m. on March 6th at Enterprise Rent-A-Car in Portland. He returned the car before opening on March 7th. He'd gone 86 miles. Later that year, in September of 2002, the main chapter, Parents of Murdered Children, Inc., which we've mentioned in several episodes like the Don Layton episode, published an ad with the names of people who had been murdered or made. Azita had been added to the list. And I was going to say it had all the murder victims, but it didn't because I looked for some of our other people and they weren't on there, even though they were before 2002. In September of 2003, Santanya Besu went on trial in Portland. Now the newspapers were calling Azita his lover. Ah, jeez. The judge was Superior Court Justice Thomas Warren. The prosecutor was Assistant Attorney General, Lisa Marchese, and the defense attorneys were Karen Dosteller and Neil Duffett. Police had reported that Azita's co-worker told them that Sam was Azita's married boyfriend, and he had sold her a life insurance policy that named him as beneficiary. He had promised Azita he had a surprise for her that night. Police went to Azita's home to interview her ex-husband at 8 p.m. Thursday night. When they searched her home, they found the insurance papers that identified Santanya Basu. And my question is, Why was her ex-husband at her house? Yeah, I don't understand. fuck you, get out of her house, buddy. When the trial started, more details emerged. In one of Sam's office wastebaskets, police found what they called a to-do list that had on it, in part, a rental car, gloves, a pillow, ammunition, garbage bags. He had reminders to get car rental and drop off vehicle. Why do you write a list? They do it all the time. It's not the
1: first time I know. Kill (laughs) Azita. I'm
0: sorry. We shouldn't make light of that. I I mean, it's making light of his idiocy, not what he did. For the defense's part, they claim that Azita's boyfriend, also called her lover in the article, Ahmad Koji also had a motive to kill Azita since he was the secondary beneficiary and would collect the $100,000 if Sam went to prison. Sam had been in jail since his arrest over a year before. Koji had a used furniture business that was in trouble. He admitted he initially lied to police about his relationship with Azita and he had broken into her apartment the day after she died and stole a letter she'd written as well as a videotape of either her in a t-shirt or her in underwear. Depending on what report you believe, Hmm. when police searched Sam's work computer, they found the same to-do list that they found crumpled up in his trash Ah, can. Ah, what a dumbass! It it was created on January fourth, two thousand and two, the same day he sold Azita the insurance policy that named him beneficiary. Kathy Bailey, Azita's best friend at work, testified that Azita was going to move to Las Vegas to get a fresh start. She agreed to cover for Azita so Koji and Human, the boyfriend and ex, wouldn't know that Azita was having dinner with another man. According to Kathy, who, as I said, I think is the most reliable, there was no romantic relationship between Azita and Sam. Sam wanted to meet Azita to take care of some last-minute business issues before she was to leave the state. I have my own theory, which I will discuss At the end about how I think all this played out. And then you can talk about it. I have one, too. Yeah. Yeah. I get to tell mine first. I know you do. I'm just saying. So we can see how we always agree anyway. I know. Pretty much. Koji testified as well. Azita had told him about the insurance policy. He said, I said, I cannot and don't want to be on the policy. He also told her to take Sam off it. Koji was trying to get paperwork from Iran so her parents could be added as beneficiaries and she would remove the two unrelated to her men. Koji was worried on March 6th when Azita didn't return his phone calls. When he checked her work and she wasn't there the next day, he got even more worried. He went by her apartment and saw her car in the driveway. He tried calling her landline and there was no answer. So he broke the front door window and and went in, and I looked up where she lived, and I thought it was like an apartment building, but it's not. It's like a house that has been converted into apartments, right. like an older house, probably about a hundred years old. Koji looked around her apartment and saw nothing amiss. However, he did take a letter that was written in Persian, and he assumed was about him. He also took a videotape that had a snippet of Azita on it. Apparently, it was a five-second recording of Azita in a T-shirt telling him to shut off the camera. He admitted he did have a lawyer to. Try to get his share of the insurance claim, but he intended to give it to Azita's parents. The Cumberland cops testified about the gunshots they heard. One of the cars they saw was silver, and the last two letters of the license plate were KE. The supervisor from Enterprise testified that the car Sam rented was silver and had the license plate number 7057 ke Although the car was almost immediately re-rented, Crime scene investigators found Azita's blood on it since it hadn't been thoroughly detailed between rentals. Teresa Calicchio, a DNA analyst for the state, said Azita's blood was on the steering wheel, the door panel on the driver's side, and the driver's seat headrest. And I thought, ew, imagine being the person who rented the car after Sam had it and not realizing you were driving it around with this dead woman's blood. I know. At Sam's trial, prosecutors played the phone call that Dexter taped for the police. Sam was heard saying on the tape, Dexter, this will go fine. Don't deviate. Through thick and thin, we'll be fine. You just need to stay with the story. Sam told Dexter to make sure to tell police they were in Sam's Mitsubishi Montero, not a silver car. Dexter said that Sam had offered him $10,000 to say they were together all evening the night Azita was shot. The night of the shooting, Sam called Dexter and left a message demanding to know where he was. Why wasn't he at the pool hall where they were supposed to meet? The next day, Dexter visited Sam at his Brunswick office. And they had the conversation about what really happened the night before. Dexter broke down in tears as he testified. I'm sitting across from the guy. And he said, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over again. I can visualize everything he told me. He said he asked her to close her eyes because he had a surprise for her. And then he shot her. He said he shot her three times in the stomach and once in the back. Sam told Dexter he used a pillow to try to muffle the noise, but it didn't work. Sam got rid of his bloody clothes, the gun, and other evidence. Sam told Dexter he had brought Azita into his office via a staircase that hit her face. So he was going to tell police that Dexter was the person having dinner with him at the, in the work break room. Dexter asked Sam, how did he know Azita was dead? Sam said he'd driven back to the sandpit the next morning and she was still lying on the ground. There were tire tracks that matched those of Sam's Mitsubishi Montero at the entrance to the sandpit, although that evidence wasn't incontrovertible. But his own car's tire tracks at the scene support his comment to Dexter that he did drive by there the next morning. Dexter told the court, I was getting lightheaded. I said, I think I'm going to pass out. Alicia McCarthy from the state crime lab, who testified about the tire tracks, was also a fingerprint expert. She said Sam's fingerprints were on the to do list that police found in his office wastebasket. The handwriting also matched Sam's, document analyst John Schatz, who was an investigator for the U.S. Postal Service, testified. A janitor testified that he saw Zita and Sam eating in the break room at the nationwide office in Brunswick. When it was the defense's term, Sam testified on his own behalf. He said he didn't want to be beneficiary on Azita's life insurance, but she begged him to put his name on it. Oh, yeah. He said she really looked desperate and needed my help. I had mixed emotions. I've never been asked to do that before. Sam had been born in Calcutta, India, to a 13-year-old mother. He grew up in Baltimore, but the news stories I read didn't detail what happened in between his birth and how he got to the U.S., which I was really curious about. Like I said, I was curious about Azita, too. I wanted to know how they got here. He served in the U.S. Navy as a missile defense technician and came to Maine as a crew member on a naval destroyer. That had been built in Bath Ironworks Mm -hmm. in Maine. He married his first wife in 1993 after he left the Navy. They moved to Limerick, Maine and had a daughter. He got his insurance license at that time. Two years later, his wife was pregnant with their second child. Sam attended his 10-year high school reunion. He hooked up with an old classmate and they fell in love. He left his first wife and married his second wife, Linda, within months of his divorce. Sam soon realized that supporting two households was expensive. He said, we weren't thrifty about our spending. He said that although he did have $90,000 in debt when he was arrested, he wasn't in the desperate straits that the prosecutors claimed. He showed the court financial records that showed all his payments on his debt were up to date. His current wife, Linda, was the trustee of a $300,000 trust fund for her son, who had been accidentally shot in the head by a friend in 1999. Sam was also in charge of an insurance settlement for his minor nephew, whose mother had died. There were no irregularities on either account. Sam first met Azita and Human in 2000 when they became his clients. After they divorced, Azita came to Sam to get her own policy. Although prosecutors said the two didn't have a romantic relationship, Even though the initial police reports did because of investigators misinterpreting things, which we will discuss, Sam said his friendship with Azita was more than his usual relationship with the client. He said she didn't talk to me just for insurance purposes and I would facilitate conversations that were more than for insurance purposes. That's why he agreed to be Azita's beneficiary. He said, quote, she wasn't begging, but she was more or less pleading that she had no one else to turn to. And if something happened to her, she wanted her parents to get the money. She said something to the effect of, please, Sam, I don't know who else I can trust. Sam had told Azita that he didn't have the correct documentation to make her parents beneficiaries, but this was not true. She had copies of her parents' birth certificates. Although they were not in English, they were still valid for insurance purposes, and police found copies of those birth certificates in Sam's file at work. On the fifth day of his trial, Sam was still testifying, and boy, did he have a story to tell. Mm. He told the court, that he was having lunch with Azita one day, not long before her death, and she told him she was moving to Las Vegas. Sam told her he wanted to go on a date with her, even though she was married. She agreed, and they made plans to go out the night of March 6. Sam said he was preparing for the date when he made a list, which he wrote on a scrap of paper and downloaded into his office computer and Palm Pilot. His list was the stuff he had to do to get ready for the date. On top of the page was written order of doing things. The first item was rent a car, which Sam said he had to do so he could keep the date secret from his wife. Then on the list was picking up a carryout dinner. Then driving to Moose Pond in Bridgeton, where he planned to park outside a house he knew was vacant. He planned for them to have dinner and hopefully more. They were going to drive all the way out to friggin' Bridgeton. It gets better. Neil Duffett asked, what were you hoping for? Sam answered, intimacy. Mm. Now, let me just cut in here. First of all, that sounds like a piss poor idea of a date. (laughs) Also, Bridgeton is an hour and a half from Brunswick. (laughs) why are you going to drive all that way to eat a takeout dinner in the car you could get frisky a lot of other places that were closer and not eat a cold dinner no shit sam said he called his friend dexter to ask him to meet at a pool hall that evening and vouch for him if anyone asked where he was he said dexter never showed up so he headed over to azita's apartment for their date right after he got inside azita's apartment there was a knock at the door Sam said she looked like she was terrified and opened the door. That's when Koji barged in. Mm. He was talking about Ahmed Kojestazed, Azita's boyfriend. Koji pulled out a handgun and argued with Azita in another language. Mm. Sam assumed it was Persian. Koji then turned to Sam and asked him if Azita and Sam were having an affair. Sam said, no, they were just going out to eat. Koji picked up a pillow and some trash bags and forced Sam and Azita at gunpoint into the rental car. He held his gun on Sam and forced him to drive to Interstate 95 and then drive north. Koji forced Sam to order a takeout dinner on his (laughs) cell phone from a restaurant in Brunswick. Sam was the one who went inside to pick up the food, but he didn't tell anyone at the restaurant what was going on. Mm -hmm. Sam's lawyer asked, why didn't you tell the guy at the restaurant what was going on? Sam said, I couldn't. Koji knew where I lived. I was concerned for my family. Then Koji forced Sam to drive to his Brunswick office, where Sam let them into the break room in the basement. Sam let Koji and Azita hide in a stairwell while Sam walked by the cleaning crew and security cameras so they'd see him. Koji ordered them to eat the food then. Mm. When they got back to the car, Koji directed Sam to drive to the Sam pits. They're about a 35 minute drive away from Brunswick. According to Sam, Koji made Azita and Sam get out of the car. He told Azita to close her eyes and he shot her in the stomach with the gun. He stuck behind a pillow. Sam said she was surprised. I'll never forget the look on her face when she came toward Koji and myself. She told Koji to stop and said, I love you. Sam said Koji fired two more shots before Azita collapsed. Then he fired one more into her back. Neil Duffett asked Sam, were you in fear? Sam said, he just killed someone in front of me. Yeah. Then, Sam said, Koji forced him to drive back to Azita's apartment where Koji warned Sam he better not tell anyone what he saw or he kill Sam and his family. Sam said this is why he covered up the crime. He felt that the only way to protect himself was to make himself look guilty, to which I say great plan. (laughs) So he altered his to-do list to make it look like he was planning murder adding the words, things needed, gloves, pillows, sleeping pills, three trash bags, ammo. When he told Dexter Fleming about the night of Azita's death, he told the real story, but Sam said he left out Koji, making himself Sam look like the killer. It was all to protect his family. Lisa Marchese, the prosecutor, asked Sam why Koji didn't kill him as well. Sam said he would have no one else to use. Who else could have done it? Lisa said, maybe he doesn't think like mm-hmm. you. Later, Lisa Marchese said, you did everything you could to implicate yourself. But when you finally got the chance to speak to police, you didn't implicate yourself, did you? Sam said, I was torn in two different directions. And I would add that if I were Koji and doing something like what Sam said, I would have made it look like a murder-suicide and implicate Sam. And I wouldn't, yeah. there would be no reason to drive all over Maine to do it. Yeah, story's obvious bullshit. Ahmed Kojesta said, got on the stand again before the end of the trial. Of course, he denied the story Sam had spun. He said of Azita, I told her I didn't want to be on the policy and recommended that Basu should not be on that policy. I said, you can put your family on it. When asked if he killed Azita, Koji said, no, why should I? I never did that. Yes, Koji admitted he did own a gun similar to the one that killed Azita. But it had been stolen from his house seven months after she was killed. In the end, the jurors didn't believe Sam's story, believe it or not. Yeah. They deliberated for three hours before finding him guilty of murder. Jamshib Jamshab, Azita's uncle, traveled from London to attend all seven days of the trial, since Azita's parents weren't able to come all the way from Iran. Jamshib told the Press Herald, "We are just happy because justice has been done. This is happy news for her mom and dad." The person who murdered her is in jail. According to the Press-Herald, Santanya Basu, Sam, showed no emotion when the verdict was read, which they always say, unless the person is distraught. AAG Lisa Marchesi said Sam's story was preposterous. She said the jury didn't buy it either. He had 19 months to come up with a story that precisely mirrored the evidence. And all he did was put a gun in another man's hand. Lisa said there were three pieces of evidence that were on their own enough to ensure a conviction. And I'm not sure if I agree, but what was number one, Azita's blood in the rented car. Number two, the to-do list. Number three, Sam's confession to Dexter. She told the court in her closing statement, any one of these things would be sufficient to convict him, but in this case, you have it all. Neil Duffett said, obviously, (laughs) he's disappointed with the verdict. In his closing statement, Neil harped on Koji, reminding the jury that Koji was possessive. He called Azita 10 to 15 times a day. He had a handgun like the one that killed Azita. He broke into her apartment the day after her death and stole stuff. Isn't that the kind of man who would burst into an apartment with a gun and do exactly what Sam told you he did? Neil asked. Neil also reminded the court that Koji was in line to get $100,000 now that Sam was convicted of murder. But Koji had testified he was going to give the money to Azita's parents. After court, Koji said, I said, neither one of us should be involved. I told her, Azita, you should take care of this. After the verdict, Koji said, he got what he deserved. He came up with a story that didn't work. Judge Warren said the sentencing would happen before the end of the year. He wanted Sam, who had no criminal record, to have a psychological exam before sentencing. As it happened, the sentencing didn't happen until June 2004. Justice Warren didn't give Sam life in prison. He gave him 62 years. The judge said, evidence clearly established it was a crime for money. It was also an exceptionally cold-blooded crime. 62 years was more than double the minimum sentence, which it Maine is 25 years to life. The judge said that although Sam didn't show remorse, had planned the murder, and Azita was aware of what was happening, the crime still didn't warrant life in prison. Sam had no criminal record, and his crime was not as bad as some others that had gotten life in prison. Mm. Sam addressed the court, reiterating his dumb story about witnessing the murder. He said he wished he could have stopped Koji from killing Azita. He never should have put his name on her insurance policy. He said he crossed the line between client and agent, and he was unfaithful to his wife because he was interested in Azita. Sam said, what we have is two families that had a life taken from them tragically. While Neil Duffett argued that the sentence should be reduced and vowed to appeal the conviction, Azita's friends and family mourned their loss. Kathy Bailey said she had met Azita at cosmetology school and they've been best friends. Azita was kind and caring and just trying to make a life for herself here in the United States. Uncle Jamship said, Azita is gone. It has destroyed her family. He noted that Azita's parents' health had declined significantly since her death. A year later, the Maine Supreme Court rejected Sam's appeal of his conviction. The appeal was based on the fact that a judge had not signed the search warrant. It had been issued without a signature. But the Supreme Court said that the main constitution doesn't stipulate that a warrant has to be signed. If a judge issues it, that's fine. Matt's not here, but I'll pretend to be a lawyer. I think even if they had found that the search and the to-do list could be thrown out, I don't think right. he still would have won his appeal. There was still too much other evidence, right?
1: Because that wasn't the only thing. His they wouldn't have overturned
0: his conviction yeah. for that. In 2004, there was also a civil lawsuit going on: Jamshab versus Nationwide Insurance. Azita's estate, represented by Uncle Jamshib. Was suing Nationwide, I think this is what it said, but it was hard to read it. It was legalese, and I'm not that smart. They were saying the insurance company was somehow responsible for Azita's death. Someone should have noticed that Sam had put himself on the policy, and it should have been a red flag. Nationwide argued that they had paid out the policy, and Azita knew what she was doing when she asked Sam to be on it. And the lawsuit Nationwide pointed out that Koji told her almost daily to change the policy. In the end, Azita's estate lost its wrongful death claim, but her parents did get the money she wanted them to have. Sam is still in prison. He's the vice president of the main State Prison Branch of the NAACP. Foster Bates, who I've thought about doing an episode about, is the president. And I might still do an episode on him. In 2020, Sam was mentioned in news stories about prisoners being allowed to vote. One kind of sad thing that came up was when I did a name search in newspapers.com for Azita, the Press Herald had a 20-page supplement from the state with a list of people with unclaimed money. Nowadays, you search online, which I just did recently for mom and dad. I forgot that back then they would issue like a supplement with the list, which was like 20 pages long with people's names alphabetically. So this is two years after Azita's death and she's listed claim number 378, 375, jam shab azita westbrook maine wages payroll salary as for my theory about what happened this is what my theory is okay i think azita wanted to cancel her policy because she was moving away or maybe she just wanted to change it i think sam said something like okay we'll have to meet and go over it and you have to sign some stuff then i think he got to azita's apartment and said oh no i forgot some paperwork at my brunswick office let's just run up there and we can have dinner there he must have rushed her out somehow so she'd forget her purse and phone They got there, he's like, let's take the food to the office. I'll get what I need. Then I'll just bring you home. But instead he drove her to the sand pits. I don't know what he told her to get her out of the car, but she had told a friend he said he had a surprise for her, so who knows? He got her to sign the insurance and formed his plan from the beginning. He knew she was naive, and some reports said her English wasn't that great, and I'm not sure if that's true, but in any case, she was probably ignorant about insurance, as any of us would be, especially if you're 29 years old. He must have sold her on how important it would be to her family to have insurance. I bet she wasn't even thinking about getting insurance, and he I bet he talked her into it. I think he always planned to kill her eventually I think the fact she was moving and maybe she'd either decided to change the policy like maybe she finally figured out that she could put her parents on it or she was going to cancel it it made him act when he did and I don't believe she ever thought it was a date if she did she would have freshened up she would not have been wearing her work clothes and her work name tag still there is no friggin way it was not a date and that's all I'm saying but that's my story so yeah, what do you think
1: i totally and first agree. of all you
0: probably never heard of that one right i rings a very vague
1: bell no. i would have Honestly, been in new hampshire when it happened i mean i was right in the same town but and I, I was right but i may have seen stuff like on the ap wire or something at work in new at the paper in new hampshire it just rings a very vague bell but I think it's the names. I agree with everything you just said. Further, my thoughts are the minute he met her, he saw a mark. Just because someone isn't in obvious dire financial straits doesn't mean they don't want more money. If he's got 90 grand in credit card,
0: Just because he's paying it now doesn't mean he's going to be able to keep
1: that up. That's true, because that's what I write about my freelance job, ironically. Not ironically because of the story, ironically because of my financial wizardry. But also, that's a shitload of credit card debt. Even if you can pay, make your monthly minimum payments... He's going to be paying that for decades. And also just having that much in credit card debt shows that you like money and you like to spend money and you like to buy things. But also he did that to-do list a couple months before he killed her.
0: He did it the day he sold it. Right. So,
1: So as far as I'm concerned, he was playing a long game. The reason he killed her, not even necessarily that she wanted to do anything with the policy, but she was moving. If this was a long game and he got that policy to kill her, when the fuck was he going to kill her if she was moving to Las Vegas? He had to kill her. Yeah, um, I didn't even before think before she that. moved. If the whole thing was so he could get money, his murder plot was going to have to be a lot more elaborate if she was going to be in Las Vegas. So we had to kill her that night. Although flights to Las Vegas are cheap, but yeah, yeah. You can get- but then you have to go, you have to know the territory. Yeah. You're, there's going to be a record of you flying to Las Vegas. And it was only America.
0: 2002. It was right. the spring of 2002. A brown guy getting on a plane. Gonna- but
1: even aside from all that, it's just. The immediate thing. I know. He's leaving. I have to kill her so I can get my money. I agree with you. It was not a date. I didn't think it was a date anyway, but then when I heard she had her work name tag on. Yes. And everything,
0: I'm like, leave it to male cops to not well. This is the thing that pissed me off. They just Her friend friend never said it was a date. No. The cop wrote the affidavit saying that her friend said that. Can you please not jump to conclusions? They have very limited
1: imagination, especially
0: when it comes to the subtleties of how women
1: interact with men. But I also want to say on that note, I don't believe it was even her choice. Obviously, she did not beg Sam to be no. the beneficiary. He, she could have made a Karen or something. He, I think it was his idea. Yeah. I think she was easily pressured by men and the fact that she was probably a little naive, but she came from a very patriarchal culture. Well, look, her and, ex-husband and her boyfriend are both. But I was going to say to all women, when some guy is trying to make you do something like that, a lot of... People given just to because I don't want to deal with it anymore. But I can see her being manipulated by him from the very beginning. I think the reason she got out of the fucking car in the sand pit is because he had a gun and he said, "Get out of the car." Oh, that could be. I've thought about that too. Because on a friggin' dark March night, you're not going to get out of in a a sand pit in the middle of nowhere. No woman in the right mind, and I don't know who will believe the story is going to believe a guy drives you to a sand pit in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, in fucking March in Maine, and says, get out because I have a surprise. What fucking surprise is he going to have for you in a sand pit? So since Occam's razor, you know, the obvious thing is he had a gun, and he said, get out, and he pointed the gun at her and said, get out. And most people are going to get out because... He has a gun and he's telling me to get out. And maybe if I do get out, he won't
0: fucking kill me. I also feel like, like I said before about the insurance, I think he knew that she had probably felt bad that she left her parents in Iran and was worried about them. And he used that to sell her that policy. Yes and made her think that it was a good thing she would be doing for her parents and that he was helping her.
1: And I think it's very interesting that Koji is like, I told her three times a day to get Sam off of that insurance policy, but it doesn't seem like he talked a lot about what she was saying about Sam being on the insurance policy. He was interested in letting them know what his opinion was yeah. of, uh, of it. And I don't know if the cops didn't ask or if he just didn't listen to her. It would have been interesting for somebody who felt so strongly about that, about Sam being on the insurance policy, to explain what and Zita's explanation
0: was. I wish there had been more, more things to read about it because I was... And also the other case. The murder-suicide. But I barely remember that. And that was horrible.
1: And Uh, that's another thing where people, oh, we must have had financial problems and stuff. But the thing is, he was probably a controlling asshole. Who knows? Maybe she wanted to leave him now that the two girls were older.
0: He could have been just paranoid and thought she was having an affair when she probably wasn't because she was probably working all the time. Right.
1: And I'm sure she wasn't telling people what was going on. He
0: could have been a very controlling. That's what they do. They accuse you of having an affair so they can beat the shit out of you. Yeah. We don't know. Oh, the uh, other thing I was going to say is Is that when Sam had that story, it reminded me of the New Hampshire one with the beheading one. How that guy had the story. Armando. um, Yeah. Oh, I was there. I watched it, but I didn't do any of it.
1: Well, Well, you know, the thing is, once they know what the facts are from the police, then they have to make up a story that fits the facts and the evidence. If you're going to make up a story, make up one that's as close to reality as possible. Like, why say you're going to drive to Bridgeton? There's I no I don't even
0: understand thing. that. That doesn't even make sense.
1: It's like, why add something to your story that's so beyond the realm of believability? The problem is, too, when you try to understand, like, people think that maybe it's from watching TV and stuff that every criminal has this well-planned out thing yeah. where everything makes sense and these flawless little plans. And it's not. People who do crazy fucking shit have a lot of crazy rationale. And even if somebody's really smart, doesn't mean they're smart about planning a crime. I know. They do shit that makes sense to them. But these police, even if they're flat footed Keystone cops, have been investigating crimes for 20 years. And there's some shit that's just going to stand out aside from his stupid bullshit story. How did he think he was actually going to get away with it? People I knew she was seeing him that night. Maybe he doesn't understand that women tell other women just random things and the other women actually listen and remember the random things. He was the beneficiary of her insurance policy. So he's the first fucking person the police are going to look at if she gets killed.
0: I know. But the other thing I thought was interesting is his friend, he assumed that his friend wouldn't think it was a bad you know, like his friend would just take it in stride. And I do give him credit that he immediately <laughs> called the police well, and told right. them. Because like well, I a lot of people sociopaths do. like, assume everybody else is one too. many months have we covered where the, the, the person's people like, are like, know, why didn't you call the police and tell them if you saw that person dead and oh I don't know. But, yeah. You know. But uh,
1: anyway, that was good good. Thank you. Another, Thank you. Another cautionary tale: If some asshole wants for you to get insurance and make him the beneficiary, don't do it. Always make your mother the beneficiary if she's alive, and if not, make your sister. You Somebody know, who won't kill you.
0: You know who I always did until I had Hannah. Who was Me? my ex? No, oh, Gordon. Gordon. Yeah, I'd make Gordon my beneficiary. So you have an NNW. I junior. do. <laughs>
1: I did not intend to make this my NNW, but it struck me so much. I had so much to say about it that I did. I watched on Disney Plus a documentary called My Name is Bulger. It was made last year in 2021 by a documentarian from Northern Ireland named Brendan Byrne. It's a documentary about, for people who aren't familiar, William Bulger, who was a longtime Massachusetts politician and briefly the president of the University of Massachusetts, and his brother, James Whitey Bulger, the notorious criminal. Now, I read that Byrne originally set out to make just a documentary about William Bulger, but once he realized how extensive the legend of James Whitey Bulger was he had to make a documentary about the two of them and how that affected the family because it's like it's like that movie with pat o'brien and jimmy cagney you know one's the priest and one's the criminal and blah 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 kind of like that bruce springsteen song right highway patrolman yeah but i scoured the closing credits to see where the bulger family bankrolled or helped produce the movie the only or... reason I watched the whole thing is I realized I needed to do an NNW about it. I didn't see any connection that I could tell as the credits scrolled past, but that doesn't mean they didn't, because I wonder why a documentarian based in Great Britain, would be interested in a story about a politician whose name isn't familiar outside New England because he said, as I said, he originally was just going to do a documentary about William Bulger, which strikes me as the most boring fucking. Within two minutes of watching this, I'm like, this documentary was made at the behest of the William Bulger family. Ooh. It starts with Billy Bulger's adult sons. They're like RH because he's in his 80s now saying they want to set the record straight because their father has been tarnished. His legacy has been tarnished by the legend of Whitey Bulger. For those of you who may not be familiar with Whitey Bulger, he's because I know we live in a little snow globe here in New England and the rest of the world isn't always paying attention to what we're doing. He was a notorious criminal who pretty much called the shots From the 60s into the 90s in Boston, and then he got a tip off that the FBI was going to arrest him, and he went on the lam, and he was a fugitive for 16 years. He was on the FBI's top 10 list, and he finally was arrested in Santa Monica, California in 2011 with his girlfriend, Catherine Grigg. The documentary tries to somehow make a case that Whitey's crime history was exaggerated, Mm. although it has the gratuitous, all the family members at the end, Billy Bulger's kids saying, oh, we feel bad for the victims, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but but, it, yeah. but yeah, it kind of walks this contradictory line that he wasn't that bad and that basically William Bulger's political enemies and the Boston Globe pretty much built it all up to make William Bulger look bad and if you think i'm being lib about this documentary just watch it and you'll see and they're very affronted by how unfairly poor william bulger has been treated and there's an undercurrent of them being affronted by how unfair whitey bulger who's a murderer yes of many many people yes has been treated and you'll see more how i feel as we go through this oh Bad reenactments. I don't believe it has any, I didn't take any notes while I was watching this. If I'm wrong, it means that they're so unobtrusive that I didn't even notice. So I'm not taking anything off. Narrative cliches. I'm taking off a point. You can't have South Boston in a documentary without showing the fucking St. Patrick's Day parade. (laughs) bad, Bad fucking bad pipes and all the fucking Southie people <coughs> waving their Irish flags. No offense, because I love Ireland, but this is not Ireland. It's South Boston. I watched this after I re-watched the very good documentary about the Gardner Museum heist. This is a robbery. And I just had that like Boston. And I saw this and I said, oh, a Boston thing. I'll watch this. And even that Gardner Heist documentary had the fucking bagpipes. Although St. Damn, was, it happened on St. Patrick's Day, so at least they had a reason. And I had too much of that cliche, Southie. Oh, we're a tight neighborhood. Blah blah blah. We're not even part of Boston really, because we're our own little neighborhood, and all the the bars and everything. And maybe to this guy from Northern Ireland, it seemed new. But anytime anyone talks about Southie, you get all that crap, and I'm tired of it. I'm also tired of the cliche that newspapers particularly well-respected professional ones like the boston globe just go after people for whatever reason or order know. to sell papers or because they have a bee in their bonnet or some bizarre animosity and maybe in great britain where the documentarian comes from that happens but if for the most part it doesn't really happen here in the united states unless there's a good reason to go after somebody i think dozens of murders and running a crime Cabal for decades is a good reason to write about somebody. I don't know. But it's a very simplistic way to look at newspapers. So that's minus one for narrative cliches. Racial gender obtuseness minus one. They can't talk about South Boston and politicians and everything else without talking about busing. I'm not going to give a seminar here on busting for people who don't know about it. Google it. Basically, because Boston was such a racist and segregated town, ju- a judge in the 70s determined that children would be bused to other neighborhoods to unsegregate the schools because, because and of course, this documentary doesn't. Pointed out, because politicians like William Bulger weren't going to fucking unsegregate on them themselves and the people of South Boston did not want black people in South Boston. This is probably the only time in the documentary they have black people and some of them make very good points. The overwhelming part of this little part about busing is white Irish people even Shelly Murphy from the Boston Globe. Oh we're not racist it's kind of sad that everybody thought we were racist no you're not Uh racist you just don't want fucking black people in your neighborhood. And actually one of the black people makes the point because the white people are we're not racist but our school is right here so why should our kids be bused across the city? well, somebody, one of the Black people makes the point, people all over the country take a school bus to a school that's not near their house. You don't have to go to a school near your house if it's going to be segregated. The documentary, well, they give the Black people a little bit of chance, they do, like most of the other rest of the documentary, they handle busing very superficially and give the edge to the white Irish people of South Boston. And you know who the least expert is on whether somebody's a racist or not, that person themselves. When a white person sits there and tells you how they're not a racist and something isn't racism, I would listen to the black people being racist against. It really made me angry. It just seemed like I got the feeling with a lot of things in this documentary, including that this guy was not familiar with this stuff and he was letting other people drive the narrative. Yes. Sounds like a Lack of good visuals. One of the few categories where I'm not taking anything away. He very lovingly shoots Boston, South Boston. It's very beautifully shot. If you want to just see very pretty pictures of South Boston and Boston, it's a good documentary to watch. Some of the shots are way too long, like Billy Bulger pensively sitting on a bench at the Did he make tea? Beach. He may have, but I may have been too. I didn't even, I can't even tell you if there was a tea kettle, but I bet you there was. And also, just because of who the two guys, the two bulgers were, there's plenty of video and news footage. So the visuals were fine. Missing pieces, I'm taking away a point. First of all, the one thing that made me realize, although I was already feeling it, that the person who made this documentary didn't know his subject well, is he was interviewing Kevin Weeks who was one of Whitey Bulger's little foot soldiers who helped him with his murders and all sorts of stuff. And Kevin Weeks was going on about how they had gotten so much money from some new drug dealer and blah, blah, blah. And it's the only time in the whole thing you hear the documentarian's voice. And he goes, what, were you bribing him? And Kevin Weeks just laughed and said, bribing him? We don't fucking bribe anybody. I'm like, this guy doesn't know how crooks, at least in America, make their money, which is shaking people down and making them pay protection. If a drug dealer comes into your territory, he's going to have to pay you millions of dollars or he, you're going to kill him. I don't expect everybody in the world to know that. I mean, I know it. Anybody who's watching Sopranos a documentary knows it. About All right. It. If you're doing a documentary about a monster, it, you should certainly know before you sit down with Kevin Weeks, how whitey bulger made most of his money when he was caught he had 850 grand stuffed in a fucking wall in his apartment and where do you think that money came from for the guy making the movie not to know that when he's talking to mobsters to not to know this basic thing about how they operated just tells me about how ignorant he was of his subject and kevin weeks is just laughing no it was so we wouldn't kill him and you can almost here that you dumb stupid fuck which he didn't say but so that was uh, one missing piece They also, for some reason, felt like they couldn't make William Bulger look good without downplaying Whitey Bulger and his crimes and what he did. Billy Bulger had nine kids, and maybe four or five of them are in this, mostly his sons. One who reminds me of every friggin' Boston Irish guy I've ever known. (laughs) But um, we didn't know what Whitey was doing. And I just want to say, I don't know, can't tell you the first time I ever heard the name James Whitey Bulger. But it was well before 1996 when he took off. Yeah, and this yeah. documentary makes it sound like, I, it was probably when I was in college and was around a lot of Boston kids in the early 80s. But- this documentary makes it sound like he was just some low-level criminal that the Boston Globe made into this legendary bad guy, mostly to get at Billy Bulger, his straight arrow brother, because the Boston Globe hated Billy Bulger for whatever reason. And the thing is, they gloss over Whitey's crimes. You know, they do mention he killed people. And like I said, they have the gratuitous stretch near the end where the Bulger children and stuff are, we feel bad for the families, blah, blah, blah. but. If they're going to act like Whitey got a raw deal, which they do, they need to spell out what he did. Like, at one point, Kevin Weeks said, we kill mostly drug dealers. Well, that's Kevin covering his own ass. And it's documented they killed innocent people. Like, their one poor slob was just giving somebody a ride, Mm. and they shot him because he was in the car. Two women... Yeah. A girlfriend who they thought had big mouths, and they pulled out all her teeth, one of them, to to show that she had a big mouth. I mean, they were cruel, did yes. cruel murders of innocent people, and this documentary does not say that. He was convicted on racketeering, money laundering, extortion, weapons charges, and being involved in 19 murders, but it was known he was involved in a lot more, and... The only one who talks rationally about the murders is Kevin Weeks. You know, I'm not saying he's any hero or anything, but he's the only one who comes close to being honest. And William Bulger's children say, we don't know what Uncle Jim was doing. I don't think anybody ever said they did know what Uncle Jim was doing, but that doesn't mean that Uncle Jim wasn't doing what he was doing. Yeah, I was going to say, now that you know what he was doing. Right. You can't deny it. Right. They also, the documentary also implies that Whitey wasn't really an FBI informant but the FBI kind of made that up to cover its ass on and I won't go into complicated stuff but after he was caught for people who aren't familiar it came out that he was for decades an informant with the FBI including one agent who was a Southie native John McCormick and that the FBI turned a blind eye to his crimes including the murders because he was giving them information even though it wasn't really that useful information and the documentary implies that this wasn't true. Like, the FBI made a bigger deal about him being informant than any of his crimes. And, well, the reason they did that was because they were trying to show that that it was some rogue agents and whatever. You know, so that was the FBI's deal. But the documentary leaves viewers with the impression that the FBI, which is not blameless in this whole thing, was making up the fact that he was an informant. And... That's just not true. It's documented, it's well-known, and it happened, and that is a deliberate inaccuracy on the part of the documentary, unless the documentarian was being led around by the nose so much. They also don't tell the whole story about how, in the early 2000s, William Bulger was testifying before Congress about knowing where his brother was. He had testified before a grand jury a couple years before, which they gloss over and got immunity, and grand jury proceedings are secret when he was testing fine before Congress. It was public and he didn't get immunity. And it makes it look like William Bulger was the victim of some big witch hunt and shit. And the issue was Congress was investigating. They have a right to do that. William Bulger was not a victim. He, He was testifying before Congress and it wasn't a witch hunt. And it makes it look like this whole thing with him having to testify before Congress was just his enemies, political enemies, and the Boston Globe and everybody just attacking him some more. And they certainly don't tell the whole story about how uncooperative he was. And he ended up losing his job as president of UMass, but his brother was on the fucking FBI's 10 most wanted list, which they imply was just for dramatic reasons by the FBI. And I'm like, the guy was a criminal. No, and the documentary kept just kind of glossing over it. Like it contradicted itself in a lot of ways. Inaccuracies, anachronisms, no anachronisms. I'm taking away a point mostly for a lot of the stuff I've already mentioned, which is inaccurate. Bussing, the fact that they're trying to portray Whitey Bulger is not that bad. He was basically a creation of the Boston Globe. Mm. You know, nobody ever heard of him until he took off, blah, blah, blah. Storytelling, minus one, for the same reasons. The missing pieces and the slant, it glosses over Whitey Bulger misrepresents his crimes and his guilt, contradicts itself by his nephew saying, yeah, they feel bad for the victims, but on the other hand, the Boston Globe made it all up. And I am oversimplifying, But it feels like the documentary doesn't really know what it wants to say. It wants to defend William Bulger and build back up his reputation. And it wants to acknowledge, because it has to, that Whitey Bulger was bad. But on the other hand, it wants to say Whitey wasn't that bad. And that it's unfair of everybody to connect William Bulger to his fucking brother. They do have Shelly Murphy from the Boston Globe who wrote a whitey bio. But other than her, and I don't know how much her comments were edited, but she doesn't really come out and contradict any of their stuff. And then they have like people like Michael Dukakis, who was a presidential candidate, and he was governor of Massachusetts. Bill Weld, who was a U.S. attorney and governor of Massachusetts. And people like that talking about mostly William Bulger, Michael Dukakis saying, well, you know... We weren't talking about Whitey Bulger and stuff. We were in the state house talking about politics, blah, blah, blah. Yes, but that does not mean that Whitey Bulger wasn't out there killing people. I know. It just means that these dorks in the state house were all doing their politics shit. And um, it's nice they got these high-powered, I feel like, whoever was behind, really behind the documentary called in some favors. Michael Dukakis was very close to William Bulger. And Bill Weld and said, we're just trying to do this documentary to untarnish William Bulger's reputation before he dies. You know, can you to speak? And so they did. But I feel like it's disingenuous. The whole documentary, I don't know. It just doesn't have any depth. And it just constantly contradicts itself part of the narrative is what a great he loved his nieces and nephews he loved going over the blah 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 that's like we all know that we watch the sopranos we all know that somebody can be killing somebody one day and enjoying yes. sunday dinner and loving their nieces and nephews the next day i mean it's not this big revelation nobody's saying whitey bulger didn't love his family that he wasn't a good family man but he killed the yes. the brothers and sisters and fathers and yeah. and and sons and daughters of other families for no yeah. good reason so this whole line that oh he was such a wonderful family man and he loved his family that's great but there's a lot of families out there and like they have this juror from his trial and she's who wrote to him in prison and all this shit and i'm like yeah she's a great great way to to buff up your (laughs) she was and they have one of william bulger's daughters trying to make this point because there's a lot of missing contact when they caught osama bin laden they found out that i think she's talking about the boston globe you know some of his family was living in cambridge and everybody was very understanding and Oh, they're, you know, his family, they're not responsible for his crimes and blah, blah, blah. So if they can be that way about Osama bin Laden, why can't they be that way, you know, about the Bulgers? We're not responsible. And it's like, nobody's saying you're responsible (laughs) for his crimes, but you've just been for an hour and a half making the case, not this woman, but this documentary, what a little tight-knit group south boston is and yeah how it's one big tight-knit incestuous family and william bulger for 16 years wouldn't say where whitey was as if whitey didn't have any contact with his family so that's a little different from bin laden's relatives living in cambridge i know you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles from Bin Laden and your own self-professed little tight-knit Southie neighborhood and the very close brother of his fugitive top 10 FBI brother not being there. So it's sad that the Bulgers have been painted with this negative brush but it's because your brother was one of the most notorious criminals Mm. in the history of new england freshness i'm not taking anything away i don't feel that it's fresh i feel it's superficial and taking this different look at whitey bulger is different because it's misguided and inaccurate but i'm not going to take points away For freshness, it's just not an issue. Repetition. I'm taking away half a point. I get tired of hearing what a great family guy Whitey was, how the Boston Globe was on this vendetta and the constant implication through this that Whitey wasn't that bad a criminal, but the Boston Globe made it sound like he was and all this kind of stuff. Beating the drum, taking away a point, the whole thing was one big drumbeat blowjob for William Bulger and somehow by association, Whitey. And yes, we get it. Bill Bulger wasn't a mobster. He was a dedicated politician who spent decades of his life because he loved his city and blah, blah, blah. But unfortunately for him and for his nine children and 500 or whatever grandchildren and everything and his nice wife. Whitey was a criminal, and he was his brother, and you can't spend this whole thing talking about how close and tight-knit South Boston is and all this shit, and then get annoyed that people associate you with this notorious criminal, and you can't whitewash it by saying that this notorious criminal wasn't really that bad. It's all the fault of the Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper down yeah. the street. So that's a score of 3.5. The whole thing is so focused on the Bulger family point of view. And as I said, contradictory with its Whitey info, somehow the family, I feel like, had to be involved in the production of this documentary. I can't recommend it. I mean, I know a lot of times we give things a low score and say, yeah, but I liked it, even though it has a low score and you should watch it. Because if you know anything about Whitey Bulger and the history and William Bulger and everything, it's going to frustrate you. And if you don't know anything about it, it's going to paint an accurate view of Whitey Bulger. That is dangerous. There are more, many more people in Boston whose lives were ruined by Whitey Bulger than the nine bulger kids and william bulger and they kind of say that at the end and my feeling was then what is the fucking point of this documentary it's revisionist history at its worst it's not a good documentary i you can watch it with the volume off to see the beautiful shots of boston but that's about it well i won't watch it he's a fairly well-recognized documentarian over there i looked him up just to see who the hell this guy was and but when he didn't fucking know that they make money by... Oh, protection, protection money, yeah. Protection money. It's like, having even watched like a movie? Like The Godfather movie or something? Or, or the Godfather, of The Sopranos, or, or read a story. I mean, how can you... Become- <laughs> oh, and there's another thing. There was a notorious, another notorious mobster, Pat Knee, who they interview on here and he was another especially in the 80s and 90s and they mentioned him in the Gardner documentary accurately and stuff and they interview him on this and it just says like acquaintance of Whitey Bulger it's like (laughs) it's like this is another fucking organized crime
0: (laughs) murderer just because something's a documentary i mean you've seen it with yeah. other ones right it's how you present you can present facts but right what you leave out and what you how and, you say stuff and of
1: course william bulger's family's gonna feel bad about how they're i'm prepared. sure they get shit
0: all the time with that name but in but
1: that doesn't mean whitey bulger wasn't what he was and that's to me that's the biggest thing it's an insult to the families of the people he murdered and all that gratuitous towards the end well we do feel bad our heart goes out to the victims families blah 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 well if you really felt that way you wouldn't have made this fucking documentary or it would have been the original boring ass shit documentary about William Bulger. He was a long-time politician who had a lot of influence in Boston for decades, but I can't see that being an interesting documentary yeah.
0: to make. You could make an interesting documentary if you with an accurate depiction of both right. of them it would have if to the have, families that involved you're not going right to.
1: right and a lot of it is the oldest son jim <laughs> driving around bitching about shit and of course mm-hmm. there's the old bitching about well southeast not the way it used to be and i'm like oh because there's like black and asian people living there now <laughs> and there's actually bars that somebody can go in without getting their face punched in because they're <laughs> not a local irish person and by irish for our listeners i mean irish american I was gonna do my NNW on something else, but I kept watching that because I'm like, I have to give my opinion on this documentary. And there you nice. go. Nice. So I guess we should go.
0: Yes, and, I have to get up for work in the morning. Then I have yeah. to drive. I have to work a couple hours, and I'm driving to Boston.
1: Ah, lucky you. I'm. I'll, try, I'll go
0: by Southie for yeah, you. Yeah, go by
1: Southie and, and and punch
0: someone in the face. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: And hey, and everybody, too thanks for the six years thank you everybody we're we're
0: just getting started even though there are you know we're listening to some of our other main podcasts i think we're one of the oldest ones yeah we are and we're one of the oldest we're old our ages are old that's right although that lighthouse guy might be i'm not talking about just the murder ones right that guy that does lighthearted for the mm, lighthouses mm, that sounds awesome actually that sounds like it might be an interesting but
1: anyway we should probably go because look how late it is yes